What a delightful joy and privilege it is this evening to come together like this. Though it may be a bit on the damp side outside, isn't it lovely and wonderful to come to a confine as comfortable as this one and appreciate the ability that's ours to be lifted up and encouraged in the most holy faith, Second Peter 1 verse 1, and to march onward and upward toward the beautiful home in heaven. As we have already made note of this evening by way of song and also by way of prayer, we have the blessed opportunity to consider various aspects of language and speech from time to time, and so it shall be tonight during the course of our lesson. Never man spake like this man. A very brief reading that Adam read for us just a few moments earlier. We shall look tonight by way of some introductory features and aspects to set the stage for a study entitled by that very name. Never man spake like this man. May I ask you to ponder for just a moment the remarkable and impressive capability that's ours to communicate by way of the spoken language. The capability of forming syllables, putting them together to make words, from them to construct sentences, and to convey whole and complete thoughts one to another by virtue of the spoken tongue. That idea alone perhaps challenges to appreciate how did Jesus speak? And how did he teach? Tonight we will consider that idea from the perspective of John chapter 7. And as we do that, we'll have a, one of the thrusts will be to use that as a guide for ways that you and I can speak. For ways that you and I can in fact teach. To do that in a fair and perhaps reasonably careful way, might I invite your attention to the seventh chapter of John, at least for a moment, as we introduce the lesson and rehearse the setting of that text that was read just a few minutes earlier. By this point in the Lord's earthly ministry, he had already come into the setting of being greatly opposed by the Jewish religious teachers. In fact, they so desperately hated him by that point that they desired to kill him. John chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. With that desire in them, they already saw in Jesus a threat of one who might in fact distract and take many of the interesting features of the, of the people away from the Jewish leaders. Rather than following the Jews, they might turn their attention, the people would, and become followers of this Nazarene, this individual who had already gained such popularity amongst the common people. In Mark the 13th chapter it was already or it would be stated that the common people heard him gladly. In so many ways the Lord could teach and convey messages and in fact share ideas that touched very tenderly the thoughts, the ideas, the desires and the powers of life for those that were common. But the religious leaders, again, seeing in the Lord a threat, not only had a distaste for him, they even already were desirous of eliminating him. They desired to kill him. And so, as we come to the 24th verse of this chapter and those that follow it, we notice that the Lord taught very powerfully and very directly to these Jewish individuals. And in verse 32, the Pharisees and the scribes commissioned officers to go and take him. It was time to bring back this opposer, this blasphemer, as they would call him, and to take rather abrupt means to deal with him. And so the officers went on their way following the commission that they had been given. When they came, though, to take Jesus, they had the opportunity to be a part of the audience and to listen to some of what he spoke. 
to appreciate some of what he taught, to notice and observe the way that his teaching resonated with those who heard and how so many of them, in fact, proclaimed and acclaimed him as a prophet and a mighty and great teacher. By the time we arrive at verses 45 and 46 of John chapter 7, these officers returned to the scribes and the chief priests, but they returned empty-handed. The Lord was not with them. And so these officers were asked, Why have you not brought him? Their reply in verse 46 was this, Never man spake like this man. I wonder what it was in that context that so impressed those officers. What was it that so captivated them that they dropped the fullness of their mission? They did not proceed to arrest the Savior at that moment, but rather they merely returned and spoke to the, those who commissioned them, to those scribes and to those Pharisees, never man spake like this man. I would invite you to consider with me tonight, what were some of the things about the Lord's teaching and about the Lord's spoken word that so impressed them that they could say, never man spake like this man. As we look at four aspects of his teaching, four ideas of things that he spoke and taught, might we in fact again notice that they have a very apparent role to play even in our speech and in our capability of discussing the gospel even today. So without further ado, first lesson that we might notice from the very context of John chapter 7 is this one. Looking specifically at verse, verses 26 and following. John chapter 7, verse number 26. We read, interestingly, this rather simple statement. But lo, he speaketh boldly, and they say nothing unto him. Do the rulers know indeed that this is the very Christ? We have the remark that on this occasion the Lord was said by others to speak boldly. B-O-L-D-L-Y. That statement, if you happen to be reading in the American Standard Translation, it will have the word openly in brackets following it. This is one of the instances when the King James is superior to the American Standard. The Greek word is actually boldly, and it means with confidence. The Lord on this occasion very powerfully and notably spoke with impressive confidence about the subject to which he was referring. And in that aspect of speaking with confidence, may we not pause too long to see. Again, the Lord was speaking in the midst of a multitude, in the midst of those who in fact knew very well that the Jewish rulers and those in, in power in, Ju in Judaism had the desire to kill him to put him to death, to eliminate him. That makes the Lord's speaking boldly all the more impressive, doesn't it? You and I might well consider that if our life were under threat, if others had perhaps made it known that they had a desire to take my life or yours, if we spoke in a public way with boldness, confidence, and directness on some subject antagonistic to their belief, would it not be of great temptation to somewhat cloud the subject, to speak with less boldness, to speak with less directness? And yet Jesus spoke boldly regarding the subject at hand. Isn't it interesting to ponder and to notice that as Jesus spoke boldly, let us in fact study that more interestingly by noticing the example of the Apostle Paul and then coming to the question of you and me. 
In Acts, the 14th chapter, on the first missionary journey, as Paul and his Barnabas came to that city of Iconium, might we never forget that as they proclaimed and preached the gospel in that arena and in that place, at first there was marvelous success. It seemed as though those who heard had a powerful interest in what was proclaimed, and many of them believed, the text tells us. However, it wasn't long before some unbelieving Jews began to stir the people, to incite them against Paul, and to encourage them, in fact, to not be ardent listeners to the faith. Those unbelieving Jews would cause great problems for Paul and his preaching. In fact, they so agitated the people that it wasn't long before Paul had to move on to another city and to another place. But this interesting remark is nonetheless made in Acts 14.3. Did those unbelieving Jews cause Paul to cease to speak boldly? Verse 3 says, And so they spake boldly, despite the opposition, despite these unbelieving Jews. That did not deter the march of the gospel. And so it was in Iconium, just as it had been earlier in other places, such as Antioch and Pisidia, and just as it would be next when they came to Lystra and to Derbe. The gospel was proclaimed in its boldness, in its beautiful and majestic power. The interesting remark that might also be affirmed and made, since we have at least introduced the Apostle Paul, what was it that he earnestly desired the Ephesians to pray for? In Ephesians 6, verses 19 and 20. I'd like to read those two verses. As we consider and remember that Paul on this occasion urged the church in Ephesus to pray for something, let us notice what it was that he asked them to pray for. Verses 19 and 20 of the closing chapter of the book of Ephesians. And for me, that utterance may be given unto me that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in bonds, that therein I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Paul felt it incumbent upon himself in every place to speak the word of God boldly. For there he said, as I ought to speak. And on this occasion he earnestly prayed that the Ephesians would pray on his behalf that he would be able to speak with a boldness with the power and the directness that was, in fact, fairly characteristic of the Word of God. As you and I read through the New Testament, and in fact the Old Testament as well, are we not impressed by the boldness with which so often the people of God were able to make positive differences in the lives of those about them? Who can forget men like Jeremiah and Haggai and Zechariah? and Elisha, and others of Old Testament fame. Those who, in fact, had the courage and the bravery to stand in the very midst of those oppositional to the character of the gospel or in the character of the Word of God, as the Old Testament way, of course, was, and nonetheless to directly and interestingly speak with boldness the nature of God's Word. I mentioned Jeremiah as the first example in that Old Testament listing. In the 26th chapter of that book, the book of Jeremiah, God specifically told Jeremiah, you go and stand in the temple court and you proclaim this sermon. God gave Jeremiah the sermon he was to preach on that occasion. And he specifically told him, be not deterred by the opposition of those who are not interested in listening and be not deterred by the opposition of those who in fact 
will strive to thwart your message. May we, of those, in light of those ideas, appreciate even today how different this kind of idea is to so many that you and I may see in our world today. Consider with me, please, for just a moment the matter of religious teaching, religious doctrine. We understand so well that the world has many differing ideas, many differing concepts, and things to which they give their allegiance. How often is it that those ideas are nondescript, vague, ambiguous, so that everybody can believe whatever they want and still feel comfortable with it? Such is not becoming of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul so spake boldly that those who heard would understand the nature of sin, the nature of what it means to become a Christian, the nature of what's involved in selfless service to the Master. Notice that these, of course, who were able to see the Lord teach, observed that He also taught boldly. You and I, when we have opportunity to share the nature of the message of the gospel, may we not do so in clouded ambiguity, but may we do so with boldness, with the understanding nature that in fact it is the inspired Word of God standing before us that we have the opportunity and the privilege to teach. But not only did Jesus speak boldly and thus give us the opportunity and the example of the same, it's also fair, of course, to observe that he spoke with discernment. And that's our second lesson this evening. Jesus spoke with discernment. By discernment, I mean the following. The capability of language that's especially suited to the audience to meet the special needs of those to whom one is speaking. Let's use an example or two. In John 16, 29, on that occasion as Jesus... Jesus' teaching was described, his apostles said directly, that thou speakest on this occasion not darkly, but plainly. And that's the very word used in the King James translation. Thus Jesus, on some occasions, spoke in parables. Thus he spoke in ways so that those who had a discerning ear could easily appreciate the message. But on other occasions, without parable, he directly and to the point spoke the clearness of perhaps a necessary change in one's life. I mentioned that matter of parables. In Matthew, the 13th chapter, verses 10 and following, on that occasion, the apostles, in fact, asked, Why speakest thou in parables? Jesus went on to answer that question. He, in fact, said that I do so so that they who see may, in fact, perceive and they who, in fact, hear may be able to hear in an appropriate and right way. But, of course, to those who had no special interest or whose interest was some way other than what was a proper and right, they would not see the message in those parables. Thus, the Lord was said to speak darkly on those occasions. Can we not see in that also the opportunity for us to answer and to speak and to teach in ways especially suited with effectiveness to the audience to whom we speak? There is a time to speak with directness, with absolute clarity, and did not Peter, in fact, feel the very same from the Apostle Paul? I would invite us to use Paul as the example here. In Galatians 2, verse 11, we find this example. 
Paul himself would say, I withstood him to the face because he was to be blamed. Point to note, isn't it? Here was a man in the wrong, namely Peter. Paul did not dance around the subject. He did not, in fact, beat around the bush. To the face, he said, I withstood him because he was to be blamed. Here we notice there was no great amount of hesitation with regard to tactfulness or to look for the right moment. Paul said, I withstood him. Strong verb, by the way, in the Greek, to the face. But notice on other occasions, Paul had the capability to address matters with the great depth of Christian intercession. The tenderness associated with a warm invitation. Is not the book of Philemon a notable example of such? In fact, we well remember Onesimus had run away from Philemon. Onesimus, this slave, came to Rome and there came to meet and to come to know none other than Paul himself. But what did Paul say in verse 19 of the book of Philemon? As Paul penned this letter and sent it back with Onesimus to Philemon in verse 19, we can there see he made, he made this observation. If he owes you anything, Philemon, put it on my account. How be it? I do not say unto thee that thou owest thine own soul to me also. I seriously doubt that Philemon ever got a bill from Paul, or ever got a, or rather that Paul ever got a bill from Philemon. For he, in Christian intercession and tender warmth, made the statement, I'm sending this man back to you not as a servant, not merely as a slave, but as a brother in Christ. You receive him in such a way to encourage him. And let me, not help, let me help you remember also that you owe your own soul to me. Two verses later, perhaps the icing on the cake, when he also made this statement in Philemon verse 21, as he made note in recollection of the greatness of what the opportunity was of Philemon toward Onesimus, he said, I feel sure you'll even do more than what I have requested. Paul had all the authority of an apostle to command Philemon with regard to Onesimus, but he knew that was not the best approach. He played upon the tender strings of Philemon's heart and urged him in Christian fellowship and love to treat this man as a brother in Christ. I personally would have the greatest of assurances that that's exactly what Philemon did. For he appreciated the tender appeal of Paul, this great apostle who had the earnestness of his soul at heart. Here's an example for us then too. There is a time in clear boldness and in clear directness to address a matter and to address a subject. And in so doing, that would be the opportunity for the greatest good in that, in that way. But there's also an opportune time to, in fact, speak in a way that addresses the concerns of another. And maybe the greatness of directness is not the best on that occasion due to their situation in life, due to their understanding of the truth. It may be that they are mere novices in the faith, mere children in terms of the faith, and they are not knowledgeable enough to take the full breadth of the gospel all at once. That means you and I need discernment as we speak to them, as we work with them, as we strive to teach them and help them to come to know the truth. In Proverbs 25, verse number 11, we read there that a word fitly spoken 
is like apples of gold and pictures of silver. When you and I are able to find that proper word and to share that correct kind of conversation, and it may well not always be obvious, but may we pray diligently for that discernment and so strive that we can best speak with others in a way just like Jesus did. He knew when to be abrupt, but he knew when to be tender. He knew when to be direct, but he knew in fact when, just as Paul did, to approach a subject with the height of Christian love and intercession with a desire to reach the tenderness of a person's heart. Those kinds of ideas help us see that in Proverbs 15, we also encounter and see yet another text that encourages us in wisdom and also in love to approach subjects in that very same manner. These kinds of thoughts help us also see yet a third thing about the Lord's teaching and about His speech. Could we also notice that the Lord spoke with authority? Not only did He speak boldly, and not only did He speak in this second way we've looked at, with the great matter of the subject we've just discussed, that of discernment, what might be said about the manner in which the Lord spoke with authority? I might ask us to notice there is a difference between speaking with authority and speaking with boldness. There are many in the world who are very gifted and eloquent speakers who can speak boldly, but they do not speak with the authority of a person knowledgeable of the subject at hand. Might we notice the Lord also spoke with authority. In fact, isn't it interesting in the Scriptures that in this day of the Lord, when he was here walking in the flesh upon earth, it was a very common scenario that the rabbis and the religious teachers and the doctors of the law and the scribes and the other supposed great knowledgeable individuals, they tended oftentimes to speak in light of the traditions of men. They tended often to speak in light of, Rabbi so-and-so said this. Rabbi so-and-so taught that. And in that way, they rested in many instances their teaching upon human thought and human speculation and human perspective. What could be said about the way in which the Lord taught? That stands in such distinction to the manner in which these rabbis so frequently spoke. In Matthew 7 verse 29, the very last verse in the Sermon on the Mount, we perhaps have often read that text and have been impressed by it. For there Jesus, it is said of him in the following words, that he taught as one having authority and not as the scribes. The scribes were so often given to teaching things about the washing of hands and the gifts to one's parents, both of which are addressed in Matthew 15 as well as Mark 7, Jesus did not rest his teaching on what a certain rabbi had said a few hundred years earlier. The Lord simply said, this is the word of God. This is the teaching of heaven on that subject. He did not rely upon the matter of rabbinical teaching or schools of thought. That very idea, in fact, is what sets the stage for more than one episode in the gospel accounts. For instance, in Matthew 19, on that occasion when the Pharisees came before Jesus and said, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause? Behind that was all of the rubbish of rabbinical teachings for hundreds of years. As we've noted in previous studies, there was on the one hand the school of Shammai, 
On the other, the school of Hillel. Notice the schools bore the names of various notable rabbis in Jewish history. The school of, Hill, of Hillel taught, yes indeed, a man can divorce his wife for any cause he wants to. The school of Shammai was just the opposite. That rabbi had long since held that absolutely not, only for the cause of fornication, could a man lawfully and according to the rule of God divorce his wife. Thus, these Pharisees felt certain that they could entrap the Savior. And thus, with a large throng and multitude about them, they asked him this question. Understanding for certain that if he answered, well, yes, indeed, for any cause a man can divorce his wife, that would have sided him with the school of Hillel. It would have alienated all the followers of Shammai. It would have been a division, thus, amongst Judaism. It would have aided to destroy his influence and power. Of course, the converse was true. If he sided directly quoting Shammai or some other rabbi, that would have sided him with that class and would have alienated those of the school of Hillel. It was a brilliant stroke on the part of our Savior. In fact, directly related to his teaching with authority. That is when he answered that question in Matthew 19, beginning in verse 4, he did not make reference to any rabbi. He said, have you not read from the beginning? He asked, what saith the scripture, Romans 4, verse 3? He took them back to what God had said at the outset, for therein is the authority. In the sense that Jesus spoke with authority. Isn't that impressive thus to consider the opportunity that's ours today? When a religious question is asked of you and me, we need not dance around the issue and beat around the bush and to quote some particular notable man in the restoration history or even before. We have the Word of God at our disposal. We can thus quote book, chapter, and verse, or ask that individual to read such, and there is all of the authority of heaven on that matter. It is a remarkable thing to consider, isn't it? And thus allows you and me today to speak with authority just as the Lord did. May we be quick to say, of course, that Jesus was divine. 1 John 5, verse 20 he, in fact, was deity itself, as we read in Philippians chapter 2. You and I know that we are not divine and we are not deity, but because we have the inspired word and we state what God has delivered and revealed, we too can speak with all the assurance of authority, whether it be a matter of salvation, such as the plan related thereto, or whether it be what's appropriate as an act of worship. Book, chapter, and verse gives us authority as well to teach with directness and the beautiful aspect of it on those matters. If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God, to quote 1 Peter 4 verse 11. And didn't Paul say himself in regard to this matter in Colossians 3.17, Whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks unto God and the Father by him. It is interesting then to see again the distinction that exists between the authority vested in the Holy Scriptures and the inconsequential handling of it by some would-be religious individuals today. Those who take text from their context and use it to teach in ways that contradict other passages, shame on them. For the Holy Scriptures do not contradict themselves. They are the absolute authority of heaven. 
Jesus, in fact, said so, did he not? In John 17, 17, Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Truth is something that has within it the notion then of authority, doesn't it? In the sense that Jesus then spoke with authority, it helps us see the urgency of his message that Paul, in fact, was given to, to relay to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, verse number 2. He was there said to preach the word. May we today enjoy the loving consideration and the powerful preaching of the Word of God, the opportunities to consider, to discuss, to thoroughly acquaint ourselves with it, to look at those matters and encourage ourselves in speech like that, perhaps brings us to the fourth lesson of our, of our time tonight. One other way in which the Lord was able to teach, and that He did teach, will be the last one of our discussion time this evening. Jesus was able to speak so directly and so definitively about matters beyond human experience. That seems especially compelling, doesn't it? In fact, in the very situation of John chapter 7, that matter took place. When these officers came with the intent to arrest the Savior, and they listened to him speak on matters such as the Holy Spirit, and to speak on matters related to the spirit and soul of a man, and to speak in such a way that so captivated and was so distinct from matters of human experience. They apparently were impressed, so much so that they returned and said, Never man spake like this man. May I ask us to consider so interestingly that God has given us senses to experience so many things, the capability to touch and to feel, to see and to hear and to taste and to smell. All of that allows us the wonderful opportunity to experience the natural world in a host of ways. And in many instances throughout the centuries, men have developed their theology around what they can experience. Some of the most noted philosophers throughout the ages those who our children are asked to study, by the way, in schools, especially in colleges, are those very philosophers who in many instances based the core ideas of their philosophies around what they could experience. It's no wonder that so much of it is nonsense. When it comes to matters beyond the concept or capability of human experience, all their speculations are worthless, absolutely fruitless. May we ask about Jesus. Did he have any problems addressing matters beyond the nature of human experience? What happens at death? Could the Lord address that with definitiveness and directness? What about what happens after death? No human being of his own volition knows anything about that. What about the nature of spirits and angels? Could the Lord speak with authority on those subjects? Certainly he could. He was God in the flesh. He had every capability with his knowledge to address those, those subjects. In Colossians 1, verses 16 and 17, he created the physical universe. He should be able to speak with directness about it. But that leads us to ask the following. Left to yourself or left to myself today, we could never address subjects like that. But yet one more time. Because the Lord has spoken on these subjects, and He inspired men to record matters related to these subjects. You and I, when we speak what has been revealed, we can address matters that are far beyond 
the role and the realm of human conception and human experience. We mentioned earlier what happens at death. There's not a philosopher in the world that has a clue about that apart from the revelation of this book. What happens after death? There's not a scholar anywhere with the slightest idea apart from the truth revealed in this book. What about the existence of spirits and angels? What about the distinction between the soul and the spirit? There's not a man alive that has a clue apart from the revelation of this book. When you and I thus open the sacred text and allow the wonderful words of this marvelous volume to feel that which we speak, we can address even to our friends, neighbors, and others matters in answer to questions or in matters of conversation that relate to subjects beyond the capability of human experience. In fact, isn't it true that ultimately the greatest questions of our existence are those beyond the realms of human existence or beyond the realm of human experience? When we rely thus on the sacred text and use the words of Scripture, we can speak definitively about what happens at death, about what happens after death, about the destiny of human beings, about the reality of angels and what are they like, about what the resurrection will be like. We can even talk about the greatness of a reunion one day, surrounding the throne of God with all those who are the saints of all time. Again, human experience alone does not allow one to address that subject with any definiteness, but yet we can, because God has revealed it in His Word. When we speak upon subjects like that, we should recognize the marvelous opportunity for us to consider that, yes, indeed, never man spake like this man. When you and I speak, we too can appreciate the distinction between that which we can say and that which is so often the discussion points of modern religion. There is very little in common, sadly enough, in, in far too many times. To perhaps bring our lesson this evening to its conclusion, we can summarize it in this way. To quote again, verse 46 of John chapter 7, Never man spake like this man. And four of the attributes of the language and of the teaching of Jesus in, again are these. That Jesus again spoke boldly. He in fact was one who was able to mesmerize a crowd, to hold them captivated in his speech and in his teaching, because he spoke with directness and with boldness even as Paul later would do and encourages us. We also notice that he spoke with discernment. He was able to speak exactly the right thing, to touch in the way needed the person's greatest need and interest of life. Thirdly, we came to appreciate too that he spoke with authority. For indeed, he was the Son of God. And when you and I speak the words revealed to and by him, John twelve forty nine, we too can speak with authority. And finally, the Lord spoke on subjects beyond the realm of human experience. By the way of revelation of the Scriptures, you and I can do the same. One of the things that you and I could never know were it not revealed is God's plan for human redemption, God's plan of salvation. Thankfully, it is recorded in simple tones and terms, and you and I can submit humbly and lovingly to it. The New Testament, in fact, encourages us to do the same. When that eunuch in Acts chapter 8 was preached to by the character of Philip, the very words of the Lord, he, in fact, said, What does hinder me to be baptized? 
Acts chapter 8, verses 30 and following. Tonight it might be that there's one or more in this audience who has come to realize the urgency of the moment, that you're outside the Lord's ark of safety. You need to believe Jesus to be the Son of God. Repent of your sins, confess His wonderful name as the Savior of your life, as the Son of God, and be baptized for the remission of sins. If we could assist in that way tonight, or if we could pray for the rededication of one who is strayed away, like that sheep in Luke the 15th chapter. Remember, the Lord went and found that one, brought it home. The Lord's waiting for you to return. Would you not desire to do that tonight? We pray for the forgiveness of the, of the sins in your life. If they've been of a public character, let others know of your intent to change, to repent, and to set a course of a new life with the Savior. If we could be of encouragement in that way also, we'd be honored to aid in either of these ways while together we stand and while we sing.